0: Well, friends, if you would, take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me this evening to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. Before we read this passage, let us seek our God together for His help. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, it was the prayer of Your Son that Your people would be sanctified, sanctified, with the truth and your word is truth so would you take your word tonight and seal it to our hearts showing us afresh who you are and what you are willing to do for the sake of your people and we ask this in christ's name amen psalm 3 brethren give attention to the word of god as it's read to you A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Well thus far, God's holy word. and May He bless it to us tonight. One of my favorite hymns is found in the Olney hymn collection written by John Newton, and William Cooper. And it's in a little section that Newton titled, Conflict. It's a Cooper product, and it begins as follows. Sorry, it's not in a hymnal, or I'd take you there. It begins as follows. God of my life, to thee I call. Afflicted at thy feet I fall. When the great water floods prevail, leave not my trembling heart to fail. This hymn recognizes that prayer is the call of the afflicted to the God who hears, pleading for His support so that the heart won't fail. That isn't, of course, the sum of prayer, but it's the essence, and it's what we find in the psalm. David, as the title tells us, and by the way, the superscription, as they're called, that's a fancy word for the title. These are written in your English Bible as though they are a introductory statement you can dispense with. That is not the case. This is verse 1 in the original. You should read the superscription. It is the Word of God. Well, David penned this when he fled from Absalom his son. And after years of a strained relationship with Absalom due to a host of factors, David's sin with Bathsheba, David's failure to discipline his son Amnon when he raped Absalom's sister Tamar, David's failure to deal with Absalom when he then killed Amnon. And then when David permitted Absalom to return to Jerusalem, there was no healing of the fractured relationship between them. Absalom despised his father, and he stirred up a coup against David. He captured the hearts of Israel, and he marched into the city to take the throne. David, to spare lives, fled the city. And perhaps he began authoring this the very night he fled when he arrived at Bahurim barefoot with his head covered, weary and weeping. The psalm moves from the dark night of the soul to hope, even as it moves from evening to morning. And maybe David finished pinning the hymn or the psalm in the new morning, confident of the Lord's help. For a glimpse of God in the darkness caused Him to know, as Cooper put it, that were a grief I could not bear, didst thou not hear and answer prayer? But a prayer-hearing, answering God supports me under every load. That's what David finds. A God who supports him. A God who hears prayer. As David wrestles through his darkness, we're going to see four things in our text. We begin together with the enemies against us in verses 1 to 2. Now note that the language here is poignant. Listen to the repetition. "O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Do you hear the repetition? Many, many, many. It reflects the rising tide of disloyalty, which is both active and accusing. It was enough that David's own son was committing treachery against him. It was the fulfillment of that horrible prophecy that Nathan the prophet made to David in view of his sin with Bathsheba. I, the Lord said, will raise up evil against you out of your own house. But it doesn't end with Absalom. Men from Jerusalem have joined Absalom's cause, plus Ahithophel, David's trusted counselor, is in on the whole scene. And with Absalom having entered into Jerusalem and plotting to chase David down, many are rising up. It's a verb of lively, evil intent. It's a phrase wholly appropriate. But as David makes his way out of the city, things get worse. Shimei begins to curse David. Maybe you remember this guy. He's a man of Saul's house and he starts yelling at David on the way out. The Lord has avenged on you, David, all the bloodshed of the house of Saul. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. Your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. That was Shimei's take on the situation. And David with head hung low took it as from the Lord. But Shimei is not the only one with accusations. Many are uttering this cruel word. There is no help for him. No deliverance in God. Now they're not saying that God was unable to help David. But they're saying God wouldn't help David. And surely the king feels the sting of these fiery darts shot at him because David has given weapons to the enemy. David has sinned. And David has brought ground for all these accusations. He was a man of bloodshed. Yes, he didn't sin in killing Saul and taking the kingdom from him, but he committed grave injustice in the matter of Uriah. And it was for such sin that he now walked this road of sorrow. Did it mean that he was forsaken? Has the Lord intending, is he intending to drive David into oblivion? Is the power of darkness? going to swallow him up. The tactic used here against David, there's no deliverance for you and God. This is a common tactic of the devil. And he does the same thing to Jesus through mockers as our Lord is hanging on the cursed tree. You remember, we just looked at it on Good Friday, how the Son of Man is hanging there and there's a trilogy of mockery coming from the passers-by and the chief priests and the scribes and then the very men on the cross. But the chief priests and scribes, you remember what they said, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He trusts in God. Let Him deliver Him now if God takes pleasure in Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. Do you hear the doubt provoked? It's the very doubt the devil stirred up in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, Turn these stones into bread. You see, they're saying, God doesn't take pleasure in you, Jesus. Well, the same thing's being said of David. And Spurgeon is right to note, brethren, the most bitter of all afflictions is to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. Because then we are hopeless. If we can't even go to the One who has the words of life, where would we go? Well, this is the aim of the enemy. He wants to kill you with despair. It therefore can produce the fiercest temptations, whether we're talking about David or we're talking about us. Because here's the thing. There's a sense in which all the ground of the accusations are true. The enemy of our soul aims to provoke unbelief by pointing out all of our sin and saying, you don't deserve any of the mercies of God. And what shall we say to that? You're right, and yet these accusers don't know what God is like. They don't understand He's a God of compassion and grace, that with Him there is forgiveness, that He may be feared, that He's a covenant-keeping God who never changes. And to this God, who David's enemies say has cast him off, to this God, David now comes in his trouble. So when enemies mount against us and all seems dark, brethren, what is the one thing that we can and must do? We run to the Lord and lay our case before Him. Again, Cooper had it right. Friend of the friendless and the faint, where should I lodge my deep complaint? Where but with thee whose open door invites the helpless and the poor? Why do we go to God well, because he tells us, 1 Peter 5 7, maybe you memorize this verse, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you believe he cares for you? Has the shed blood of Jesus Christ shown you the love of your Father and His willingness to listen to you? And being loved, can you come? to His very presence and unburden your soul to Him in prayer. That frustrates our accuser. And here's the amazing thing that happens when we pray like this. Prayer is a lifting up of the eyes to God. Though we cast our burdens at the feet of the Lord and tell Him all of our troubles, because we're lifting up our eyes to Him, we are necessarily taking our eyes off of our trouble and beginning to look at the Lord. And that's precisely what happens in the psalm. And it leads to a turning point in verses 3 and 4. See, secondly, with me, the God we trust. As David takes his eyes off the many, 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 he now describes three things about the Lord, Yahweh, and the one thing God has already done. He says first, verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Now the image of Yahweh as a shield is one of David's favorites. He uses it in Psalm 5, 7, 18, 28, and a handful of others. You can imagine David as a warrior going into battle with a sword in one hand and a shield in the other. Well, the uniqueness of this verse, however, isn't that Yahweh is simply a shield. He's a shield round about me. All around me is the idea. David need not fear if Yahweh, the covenant God, guards me on every side. The same God who is a shield for him against Saul, Psalm 18, who is a shield for him when he fled from Saul's men, Psalm 59, who is a shield for him when Cush the Benjaminite slandered him, Psalm 7. This is what God has been, and it's what He remains. The Lord surrounds David with protection, and that fortifies his soul because David knows the Lord is faithful, immutable, omnipotent. Nothing can penetrate His defense of me. And that truth should fortify our hearts tonight as well. For our God and David's God are the same. He is for us in Christ, delivering up our shield, Jesus, to take the blow for our salvation. We are sheltered from the fiery wrath of God and thereby victorious through Christ. Proof of the Father's sweet love. You are a shield round about me. But then David says a second thing. He's my glory. Now the word for glory in Hebrew testifies of weightiness, heaviness. A thing or a person of substance. And that's what David is here confessing about God. You remember what the wicked are like, Psalm 1. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. There's no substance, nothing weighty about them. But that's not what God is like. He's the most substantial being in the universe. David is not ascribing honor or majesty to himself, though he is the king. He's saying, Yahweh is all my glory. And this is a Significant point to make for an ancient Near Eastern king when you've been driven from your throne. The kingdom is being taken from David by treachery. It's stolen right from underneath his nose. And that is humiliating. But David is not walking out of the city entertaining thoughts of his own pride. He is saying, my glory is my God. He's my sufficiency. He's all I need. I don't put my trust in any outward honor I could receive from man I boast only in the Lord. Beloved, is that the posture of our souls? When the devil drives us to despair by telling us of our guilt, this is the very point to which we should be led. I boast only in the Lord. Jesus is my all in all. He is my righteousness. He is my sanctification. He is my redemption. He is the champion of my soul. Why? Because He's defeated you, Satan, who held the power of death, and He's liberated me from fear. Christ has triumphed over principality and power, and I magnify Him because He's raised me up. I delight to serve Him. I can rejoice even when passing through the fires of affliction because they draw me nearer to Him and prepare me to see His face. He is my glory. And yet there's another thought that may be here with David confessing that Yahweh is my glory, and it has something to do with vindication. In the wilderness journeys, particularly in Numbers 14 and 16, the glory of the Lord came down in moments of rebellion, whether Israel rebelling or Korah in his mutiny against Moses. And Yahweh's glory signified His readiness to intervene on behalf of His people. And it might be this thought that David has in mind. David has been slandered, humiliated. He's about to be attacked. And what is his only hope? He's saying, Yahweh is my defender. He's my glory. He will draw near to me. So I entrust myself to Him who judges justly. And I know that He will come to my aid if He is for us. Who can be against us? He's a shield round about me. He's my glory. And then thirdly, David says, He's the lifter of my head. Currently, David's head is not lifted up. He's weeping as he goes out with his head covered. A sign of mourning. The same language is used of Ezra in Ezra 9, indicating Ezra's lowly state. And he's ashamed and embarrassed to lift up his face to the Lord in view of Israel's sin. <clears throat> you get a sense of the same concept in the Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector won't even lift up his head to heaven overwhelmed by sin. That's something of how David feels, I'm sure. He knows it's his guilt that has led them to this place. He is experiencing the consequences of his own sin. In fact, his Judicial negligence in dealing with Amnon and then Absalom have created this mess. However, what Absalom was doing, David knows, is completely unrighteous. So where else is David to turn? Well, he comes to the God whose steadfast love never ceases. And I'm sure along this journey as David was weeping, considering the crushing blow of his own son seeking to kill him, I'm sure he starts questioning his credibility to be a king. Am I really a man after God's own heart? Should I even be in the position as shepherd of God's people because I have failed miserably? Some of us perhaps could relate to David's emotional state. Maybe you've experienced the pain of a stinging loss which has caused you to question your competency as a leader. Maybe it's a child who's rebelled to the things of the gospel. Maybe it's a business venture that went belly up. Maybe it's some personal endeavor that fell flat on its face. Maybe you feel valueless as a person. Maybe you're walking through an embarrassing failure. And the temptation in that is to think that your usefulness is finished, you're ruined. Because your sins are more in number than the hairs of your head, and your wisdom is totally defective. Doesn't the enemy exploit such a time by pressing us to see or to think that we are beyond recovery? It's hard to imagine really a darker pit than the one David's in. He has a rebellious son after his throne and after his life, all in consequence of his own adultery, and murder. The whole thing is a public scandal. And it is embarrassing. But what does David do? Though he's crushed, he doesn't let his feelings sink him into despair. He submits to these dark providences while clinging to the truth of God. And that submission begins when as he's fleeing the city, Zadok comes out with the ark to take the ark along with David. And David says, take it back. If I have found favor in the Lord's eyes, He will bring me back. But if He says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Listen to the submission here. Let Yahweh do to me as seems good to Him. Do you have that level of resignation to the providence of God? Let the Lord do to me whatever He will. How can you do that? Only if you know who God is. David knows the Lord is good and does good. So he entrusts himself to the Lord. But as David went along, after finding out Ahithophel, the man whose counsel is like the very counsel of God, is involved in the treachery. David cries out that Ahithophel's counsel will be thwarted. And just on the next hill, who does he happen to see? He sees his friend Hushai, who he sends to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. And suddenly David has renewed confidence. God is hearing my prayer. I can submit to the Lord's hand and God is answering me. God is delivering me. Well, this is the confidence that David is here asserting about Yahweh. Because of who God is, a God who doesn't forget the cry of the afflicted, a God who will not let those who wait for Him be ashamed, but will bring into shame those who deal treacherously, treacherously with others. Because of these things, David can be assured of restoration. And that's ultimately what this language means, the lifter of my head. Do you remember that scene in the book of Genesis, the end, towards the end where Joseph is in prison and he becomes the interpreter of two servants of Pharaoh? And he tells one that his head is going to be lifted off. And he tells another that in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. The cupbearer. You will be restored to your position. That's what David is saying. You are a God who brings restoration. Now clearly, this doesn't just have a physical component. David is going to be restored as king. It has an emotional component. David's whole emotional state in this psalm is about to change. The truth that our God takes the poor and raises them from the dust. He takes the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes. That stirs the soul. However, it's vital for us to see here what it is that changes David's emotional state. It is truth. Truth about God. As Alistair Begg put it, if you're waiting something for something other than truth to transform, you'll be waiting a long time. David's circumstances haven't changed at all, but the truth about God affected him. Brethren, it is truth alone that stays. Feelings are turbulent. Circumstances are up and down, but God is a rock for us. His nature is sure. That's the comfort we have. He lifts up our head because He doesn't fail. And the sight of God and who He is changed everything for David. Why well, is it changing everything for you? Are you able to get your eyes not on your circumstances, but on the God who is for you in the trouble? Are you beholding the Father who is constant and faithful and abounding in love and whose ear is attentive to your cry. Indeed, that's the final thing David tells us here. He says, God has done something. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. David is fleeing from Jerusalem, away from the ark, having sent it back. He's crying to the Lord with His voice, and he's heard. Why was he heard? Because access to God doesn't require being in the temple. My prayer went through the wilderness back into Jerusalem, into His temple on His holy hill and met Him. The Lord is accessible to me even when I'm on the run. Oh, if there's a head-lifting truth, it's this. You don't just have to be in the sanctuary in public worship to have God listen to you. He's accessible wherever you go. These enemies make their claims. There's no help for you and God. But God has answered me. God has come near to me. Isn't this proof David is thinking that God longs to be gracious? That He waits on high to have compassion and He will surely show His grace at the sound of our cry? Well, beloved, this is who God is. And we've been given a greater sense of our access to Him because by the blood of Jesus, We don't simply go to one spot on the earth, the temple. We can be anywhere at any time and boldly approach the throne of grace. No matter what dire strait you're in, you have a means of access through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you trust in Him, you've been raised up with Him and He pleads for you. That is a head-lifting truth. And it's a truth that remains. Copious measures of grace are available to dump on our heads in our affliction and our Savior is ready to come to our aid. May we only believe. Well, third, we see with me <clears throat> the support the Lord gives. Verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> with the truth about God, now giving David certainty of protection, defense, hope-filled restoration... David can go to bed and rest. Look at what he says, verse 5. Literally, I myself laid down and slept. Note the emphatic I of verse 5 only comes after the emphatic, but you, in verse 3. Without the certainty of the Lord's protection, there would be no rest. On September 5th, sorry, September 15th, 1944, U.S. Marines hit the beach of an island called Peleliu in one of the bloodiest battles of World War II. One of the soldiers coming on Orange Beach that day was Eugene Sledge from Montgomery, Alabama in the 5th Marines. It was the first time that Sledge had seen combat, and he termed it, and I quote, an assault into hell. As the mortars fired on his men, he said, every muscle in my body was as tight as a piano wire. I shuddered and shook as though I was having a mild convulsion. Sledge goes on to say, under the first barrage, he learned a new sensation, utter and absolute helplessness. But as bad as the day was, and it was a bad day, He's running across a field. He writes of saying Psalm 23 repeatedly as he keeps going and going and advancing advancing and mortars blowing up and people dying left and right. When he finally gets to the other side and it's nighttime, there's no relief. His thirst was unbearable. His water was gone and they had no idea when more water was going to be supplied. Artillery shells were shrieking through the night, whistling back and forth overhead with increasing frequency. Star shells are exploding in the sky, lighting it up like a firework show, and small arms fire are still popping on the ground. The sound of all this sledge could only describe as, with the understatement of the century, absolutely terrifying. But the sounds of battle weren't the most unsettling thing. It was the threat of nighttime infiltration. You see, the Japanese had already been known on Guadalcanal for their infiltration tactics. They would sneak into your foxhole to dispose of you in the middle of the night. And they refined these tactics on Pelulu and practiced them at a level in, of intensity not yet seen in the war. So on that first night, when Sledge reached his hole and thought he could rest, his foxhole buddy drew his knife out, stuck it in the coral, Checked his 45, and he said it's going to be a rough night. Friends, David, as he's on the run here, he doesn't have mortar shells exploding over his head. He doesn't have small arms fire snapping around him. But the thought of enemy infiltration and of fierce adversaries hot on the trail is just as intense as on the island of Peleliu. Sleep may have been a battle for the Marines that night, but look at what David could do. David could go to sleep and stay asleep and wake up. Why? Verse 5, "...I myself lay down and slept. I woke again, for Yahweh sustains me." The crippling anxiety that often grips a man's heart in the face of unsettling things is suddenly banished from David's soul. He had been anxious, but He used the divine remedy. And it wasn't an Ambien. It was prayer. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds In Christ Jesus. That guard was an astounding reality. David laid down and slept and he woke up with renewed confidence. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. Why not, David? Because I trust in the Lord who sustains me. Again, my situation hasn't changed, but my eyes are on the God who is Lord over the universe and nothing can thwart His purpose. He can uphold me in this mess. Well, beloved, do we believe that this God is the same? That His preserving power can support us in our trouble when we are too weak to handle it? That's what trust in God is all about. That's what gets us through the night and the next day. We come to God, we give our burdens to Him, and we put our eyes on Him and rest. Again, this is the God who spared not His only Son but gave Him up for us all. And if He's freely given Jesus, What will He withhold from us? Do you see love already incredibly demonstrated? Or can't you trust Him to take care of you in something less? He's our keeper. He's our sustainer. He rides the heavens to our help. Are our eyes upon Him. And then finally, see with me, the deliverance to come. Belief in the Lord's sustained commitment should move us to look for deliverance. And that's exactly what David does, verse 7. <clears throat> Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And let me tinker with the ESV here. For you literally have struck all my enemies on the cheek, you have broken the teeth of the wicked. Now, you're going to find some variations among translations in verse 7. Because verse 7a makes it clear, deliverance has not come. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. But then verse 7 literally speaks as though God has already acted. You have struck, you have broken. How can David say God has done this when He hasn't done it? It's because he's so certain that the Lord will rise to His defense because of who He is, that He speaks of it as if it has taken place. In the prayer for the Lord to arise is a war cry from Numbers 10.35. Moses would say as the glory cloud covered the camp and as they broke camp going out with the ark, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Well, David is calling on the Lord of battles to do the same thing here to deliver Him. He has a place to hide, and it's not a spot in the wilderness. It's the Lord. The Lord is His protector. Now, many struggle with the violence stated in verse 7, that you strike all my enemies on the cheek and have broken the teeth of the wicked. They struggle with prayers that are like this in the Psalter. We're going to see a lot of these things, but I want you to understand two things about these kind of prayers. First, David is not taking vengeance in his own hands. He's entrusting himself to his father to defend him, just like Jesus does on the cross. Jesus doesn't Utter threats in return to the threats uttered to him, but he keeps entrusting himself to him who judges justly. David also recognizes it's more than just himself at stake. The prayer of verse 8 reminds us your blessing be on your people. Absalom's wicked leadership would hurt everyone. So David is concerned for all of God's people. This is not personal vengeance. He's asking for the Lord's intervention on behalf of the whole community of the people of God. And then, second, David can't be safe unless his enemies have their teeth broken, unless they're crushed. Fourteen days after the initial saw on Peleliu, Eugene Sledge, 3rd Battalion, 5th Company Marines, he hit the beach of a small island about 500 yards off of Peleliu's northern coast. And immediately they began firing into pillboxes and bunkers and tossing in grenades. Sledge and a buddy were Pressing inland when a Japanese machine gun opened fire on them. So they quickly huddled behind a small coral rock as the slugs are zipping by. And as they're pressed shoulder to shoulder, suddenly there was a sickening crack like someone snapping a stick. It was a sniper that they had missed. He saw the two of them hunkered down and he shot Sledge's friend. Sledge was literally between a rock and a hard place. He had to drag his buddy around to the side of the rock while machine gun fire is still coming at him. A dock comes, another Marine to assist the wounded man. And Sledge starts yelling at two others to alert them to the sniper and to take him out. Because if they're going to get out of the mess, the sniper had to die. And soon, they got him. Here's what I want you to see. It's a really simple thing there would have been no deliverance for sledge and his buddies if the sniper didn't have his teeth broken what's well, the same here with david if salvation is going to come to him david's enemies have to be shattered brethren there is no salvation without the destruction of our enemies that's what christ is doing for us on the cross he's defeating sin he's defeating the satan satan and it's inaugurating the redemptive narrative, the redemptive power that will consummate in the last day when the Lord will come and wipe out all of our enemies. In fact, when we pray, Your kingdom come, we are praying for the destruction of everyone who doesn't bow the knee to King Jesus. And yet it's vital to note whom to whom such a prayer should be directed. David is not looking to his own battle prowess to get him out of the fix. He cries, Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. And he knows, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. We're going to say it a different way. Salvation is God's business. Now in this context, he means a physical deliverance. But brethren, it doesn't matter what kind of deliverance we're talking about. The sense is this. If salvation is to be had it can only come from the Lord. He is the helper of the helpless. He is the one who is sufficient to attend to us in a family crisis, in business turmoil, in physical affliction, or if we're in a dead spiritual state. Help is found in nowhere else. And by writing this for all of God's people to sing, David is telling us, you must believe this and hope in your God. You have no other means of deliverance. Well, is that what we believe? that God alone is our Savior. And we don't come boasting anything of us. We look to Him. William Cooper ends his wonderful hymn in a prayer in conflict saying this, Poor though I am, despised, forgot, yet God my God forgets me not. Do you see, brethren, that we're not forgotten? Are we safe because the Lord is for us? Yes, we are. Are we confident because our eyes are on Him and the proof that He is for us in the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ? That is another truth. To lift up our heads. Afflictions will not ultimately prevail. Our deliverance is sure because we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. May we believe and who our God is, and what He's ready to do for His people, to come with glorious deliverance, even for great sinners like David and like us. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, we marvel at Your power, Your constancy, Your readiness to hear and to take action on our behalf. And Lord, we pray that we would use the means You have given for our soul's comfort. We pray that Your truth would be our focus. We pray that we would cry out to You as we're hard-pressed because You are willing to give mercy and help in our time of need. Lord, minister to our souls and all the troubles that we face and teach us again, even today, that You are a shield round about us our glory, in the lifter of our head. For we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.